a study that we've called Hearts Over Clubs. And um, we've been looking at Paul walking the church in Corinth through a particular issue that was dividing them. Um, The issue at hand had to do with eating food sacrificed to idols. But specifically, what Paul is doing is, is deeper than that. He's going beneath the surface, and what he's been providing us with is um, a better way of decision-making in the Christian life. And what he's emphasized over and over again is that at the bottom, foundationally, the core principle of how we decide what to do and what not to do is driven by love. Now, the verses we're going to look at this morning are entirely, fully, completely just a single metaphor. Paul just paints a picture for us, but it's important to keep in mind that bigger context that I just mentioned. Um, see, this is one of the challenges of, um, of reading the Bible in general, um, especially just because we read it so differently than we do other things. I mean, just take what we're doing as a church here. We've taken most of this year, and we'll take some of next year, to move through about a 12-page letter. Uh, And so taking it at that pace, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that any given paragraph, any given piece is a part of the whole. And it's not problematic. It's got lots of benefits, right? It allows us to take out the magnifying glass and look deeper and be thoughtful. But if we lose the flow, we can also misunderstand uh, what's going on. And and this morning, I think that's that's more problematic than some other places. And so we're going to do our best to keep in mind the context But either way, you're going to want to open up to 1 Corinthians, if you have a Bible this morning. Um, If you're in need of a Bible, there's one nearby you in the back of a pew. They're the black ones. Um, You can use the index to find Paul's letter, uh, 1 Corinthians, and we'll be in chapter 9 once again. We're going to pick up in verse 24 and read through the end of the chapter. Verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we and imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us this morning by your spirit to be better in tune um, with these underlying realities, Lord, these um, unseen principles of the reality of who you are and of eternal life um, and uh, of what Jesus has done. I pray that you'd help us to, to see the point this morning. When Paul says, do you not know, I pray that we would know. And I ask that you would help us to, um, to know these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So Paul chooses a sports metaphor this morning. Um, and the reason he does so is because he's talking specifically to the church in Corinth. And he's drawing these from the Isthmian Games, okay? So in the ancient world, there was the Olympics. And like today, that was the sporting event of all sporting events where all of the communities of Rome would gather together. Only second to the Olympics is the Isthmian Games, okay? There were four major international, I mean, it's an empire, but you'll, you understand what I mean by international. There were four major sports competitions, and the Isthmian Games were the second biggest and most popular, and they happened right outside of Corinth. And so part of the reason he opens this up by saying, do you not know, is because everybody in Corinth knows, okay? It may be possible to avoid knowing about the Olympics uh, in Seattle. I don't think that's actually the case. But Vancouver, a handful of years ago, not so much, right? It's unavoidable, and it was the same way in Corinth. And so he takes this picture and he applies it, but it's important that we recognize here what he's doing is not painting an allegory, okay? So he's not giving us a running illustration where every aspect of the illustration aligns with an aspect of his application. He's really just driving at motivation, okay? He wants us to think about why an athlete does what they do or doesn't do what they do, and he wants that to be the window through which he's talking about. Now, the second thing we have to keep in mind here is that he's pulling this image of sports out of what he just said, okay? And so what he had said in the earlier paragraph is that he doesn't take a paycheck uh, as a pastor, and he doesn't do all sorts of things. In fact, he becomes like others and easily lays down his freedoms. Uh, why? So that he might win he says it over and over again, so that I might win Jews, so that I might win Gentiles, so I might win the weak, okay? That is the winning that Paul is talking about here, okay? And so with those two things in mind, let's, let's look at what he says this morning again in verse 24. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And so what he points out first wise is that if you look at a sports competition, if you look at the Isthmian Games, for example, there's a lot of runners, but only one wins, okay? Now, his point here is not that the Christian life is in competition. In fact, let me clarify something that you could completely misunderstand if this was your only, uh, only window into Christian teaching, okay? This makes it sound like the human life is a race and that we're all shoulder to shoulder at the starting line and the gun goes off and we run and if you can just get across the finish line then you win right and then there's victory then there's salvation then there's eternal life or whatever um, Paul here is addressing people who are Christians and therefore running not running to be Christians uh, Christianity uniquely puts salvation at the front of becoming a Christian and not at the end Okay, And so all other religions say, follow this path so that you reach the goal. If you do these things, then you can cross the finish line, play by the rules, and you will win the game. But the Christian life begins with the, uh, the race of another, if you will. The, the Bible declares that what Jesus has done 
is everything we need to be saved. And so it's, uh, it's insightful that while Jesus is dying on a cross, one of the last phrases out of his mouth is, it is finished, okay? Uh, paid in full is what the word means literally in the Greek, to telestai is the word he, he declares from the cross. It's finished, it's complete. In other words, at the cross of Christ, what God has done is, the, is effectively crossing that finish line, okay? The cameras are going off. Uh, the, Jesus is the only one who's ever completely and perfectly run the race. And so Paul not, here is not talking about how someone becomes saved. That is only by what Jesus has done. That is only through the grace of God. That is only by entrusting the entirety of you winning the race to another. Okay. Instead, he's saying, now what? Now what? If I could pull out Paul's uh, illustration in a way that he doesn't, but is helpful for understanding, to be a part of the Isthmian Games or the Olympics or anything in the Roman world, you had to be a Roman citizen. Your citizenship is not at stake, nor could you win your citizenship through running the games, but only citizens could run, okay? And so if you're not a Christian this morning, this is, this is not directly practical for your life. There's principles here you can draw from just normal behavior, uh, and this will help you to understand the motivations and the philosophy of the Christian life, but... As an entry point into Christianity, it's before this, okay? It's separate from this. Related to that, he says here, don't you know that only one person takes the prize, right? Don't you know that only one is going to win the gold? Don't you know that there aren't medals handed out for participation in the Isthmian Games, okay? That's what he's saying here. But his implication here is, is not two things. First, it's not that what he's talking about here is a competition, that what's going on in the Christian life is Christian versus Christian, and we're all competing for the highest score, okay? That's, that's not his, uh, his, his point here at all. In fact, we'll dial back to that in a second. Instead, what he's trying to say, um, what he's bringing forward is the reason why runners run the way they want, run, train the way they train, practice the way they practice, uh, you know, use self-control in the way they use self-control is because there's only going to be one winner, right? He's setting us up for what follows. Now, there's a sense, actually, where this should be more pressing for us in the metaphor because many of us know the primary reason why we don't compete is because we're pretty sure we can't win, Right? We're smart enough to know that there's someone faster than us. We're smart enough to know that there's someone stronger, and we, we just go, well, if I can't win, then why even try? But as he points out here, there's going to be a lot of losers in the Isthmian Games. All of them are competing for that same place. So, so simply put, how much more? If the reality is that the only competition, if you will, in your life as a Christian is you. If, if the only metric that God's going to use for what we're talking about this morning is a personal metric that's custom fit to you, if it has nothing to do with anyone to your right or to your left, and I know this to be the case because Paul has already said this earlier in the Corinthian letters. Uh, look at what he says just a few chapters back in chapter 4. 
Look at what he says in verse 3. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And so what does he say here? He says there's only one judge of your performance, and he's the only one you have to care about. And he goes on later, and he he asks this question. He says, why do you judge another man's servant? What's required of a servant, he says, is faithfulness, okay? And so the metric, even that we're talking about this morning, is a personalized, it's a custom fit one, but that doesn't change the importance of what Paul's saying. He's saying that when, uh, you know, when the runners take their posture, when the boxer enters into the ring, they aspire to win, okay? I think you could argue that plenty of people out there who are running, uh, or even those ones who are taking Taibo, for example, uh, may not be in it to win. But you can't say that of somebody in the Olympics, can you? Right? The amount of time and effort and discipline and the tremendous cost, they're there for the gold. In fact, to my knowledge, I'm not aware of anyone who's ever honestly said in an interview of the Olympics, actually, I'm just here for a bronze. That's my aspiration in life. If I could just get a bronze, I'd be content. Right? That's what Paul is saying here. And so here's here kind of to open the door of where Paul is going this morning, what he's saying. His criticism of the Corinthian church is that their metric for can I do this, yes or no, is an ends metric. All they're thinking about is the act itself. All they're thinking about is the event itself. So they're saying, am I free to enjoy this or not? Do I have the right to do this or not? Don't I know enough to enjoy this or not? And Paul says, but what if there's an end that's deeper? What if there's something further beyond? What if the decision shouldn't be about this? Simply put, and we'll see this very quickly, you may ask yourself, can I have a bag of Cheetos? But if you're an Olympian runner, the question is going to have a completely different connotation, doesn't it? It's, it's no longer just merely a yes or no question, it's a no if question. It's a yes if question. And Paul says you've completely forgotten the if. He says the way that they're behaving uh, is like a runner in the middle of the race going, man, I'd really like a cheeseburger. I wonder if I have time to get one right now, right? It's missing the bigger picture of what's going on. Paul's criticism of the church in Corinth is that uh, they have no end game in mind. So, like I said earlier, when Jesus died, he declared it is finished. And because he rose again, that's like the receipt of this transaction, the sacrifice that Jesus has done for us. It's the evidence that it's been paid in full. However, that doesn't mean there's no end game to the Christian life. Okay? So, because Jesus ran the race doesn't mean that we no longer have to run. It changes the race entirely. It ensures victory for sure, but there's still a purpose in your life. Okay, this is why Christianity isn't some sort of suicide cult that says once you've prayed a prayer and said everything right, take your life before you screw it up. No, there's, there's a reason 
There's a purpose. There's an intention. And Paul's criticism for the church in Corinth is, have you forgotten where we're going? Have you forgotten what we're here for? Notice what he says next. He says, so, at the end of verse 24, run that you may obtain it. If there's a finish line, if there's a purpose, if there's a goal, if there's a reason that you're here, then shouldn't that determine how you run, which direction you run in, how you train for that running? This, this is what he's trying to point out. And so he moves it forward, and he says, verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Okay? And so this is really the heart of the metaphor. He says, think of the life of a lifetime athlete. Think of the life of somebody who's devoted to win the games. Think of somebody who, you know, at a young age is set aside in training. He says, every single one of them exercises self-control in all things. Okay? And so just ponder with me for, for a moment what that actually looks like, how many areas of life that uh, interacts with. Your schedule, obviously, right? If you're going to win the gold, then you're going to have to devote some time. Whatever natural running talent you were born with, it's not going to get you across that finish line fastest if you just, you know, um, if you just show up at the Olympics. It's going to take time. And if any of you have ever known any, anyone who's competitive in nature, and I mean this in the devoted life sense of competition, it's a good deal of time. There's a lot of time we spend doing other things, and nothing's wrong with those things. They're totally natural. They're totally normal. But for the athlete, it's not an option. Okay? Diet, obviously. And that's clearly one of the ones that Paul is thinking about because that's the issue is can I eat? And for an athlete, that question is constantly controlled, okay? Not just how often can I eat or how much I can eat, but exactly what I can eat. All of these things are determined. Um, think about uh, just the fact of exercise alone, okay? He uses the phrase self-control here, and I'll be honest, that's the reason I don't exercise, Okay? Because exercise, when you're gaining something from it, when you're growing, when you're getting faster, if you will, is never fun. Okay? If exercise has gotten fun, it's my understanding that it's no longer beneficial to you and you need to up your game. Right? The idea here is, uh, is one that Paul will come back to, so we'll leave it there. But I want you to notice this phrase, self-control. Because it shows us something that we wouldn't have noticed the Corinthian church has basically said, if there's nothing wrong with this behavior, aren't I free to do it? But when Paul says, exercise self-control, he says, are you free not to? Do you see how he's coming in at a different side? He's, he's looking at this from a different perspective. And so they're saying, but this is something we can do. And he's saying, but can you not do it? Could you escape it? He says, maybe what you're calling freedom is actually a slavery. You're, you're capable of doing it, but can you lay it aside for something more important? That's why Paul begins two chapters ago by saying, all things, in life are or all things in life are good, but not all of them are beneficial. All things in life are good, but I will not be the slave of any. Okay. And the reality of pursuing a goal like this, like we're talking about this morning, is you start to discover that you rely heavily on things you did not know you relied on. Right? Suddenly you find yourself dreaming about 
cheeseburgers or being tempted to do things that are inherently not sinful. And so it feels strange to even use the word temptation. But you have this struggle now. In fact, as a sidebar, it is really easy to feel like a good person that has no need of a savior like Jesus if you don't try and do what he says. The, the, the way that the Bible understands sin is that that's the natural place that we all live in. And so if you try and do what Jesus says, that's where the resistance happens. That's where the battle happens. That's where the difficulty happens. And this is the same reason that we're talking about here. He uses the phrase self-control here, and something has happened to that phrase in in Christian understanding. Because if you were to read in the book of Galatians, self-control is a gift, a fruit particularly of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's something that God does in us. But the problem is, when we hear the word self-control, we assume that it means myself controlling myself, right? But there's another way to read that phrase, which is myself is being controlled. You see the difference there? And I have found that that first definition for self-control, even though it's the natural one we turn to, is a trap. I mean, just, just think, about, uh, think about it for a second. If that's the case, you either have self-control or, if you, or you don't. If it's you that needs to control yourself, that's the problem. But the Bible says that for the Christian, we have something available, the Holy Spirit, and so self-control is possible. Okay? Now, um, he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And so, once again, this is... This is uh, this is because they have a goal in mind, because they've made that where they're headed. And so they know that all of these other things are detours that will slow the trip if they get there at all. But notice what he adds to this. He says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Now, at the Isthmian Games, the, the award was not a gold medal, uh, but a wreath that you would wear on your head. And specifically, it was made, made of celery. This is the truth, Okay. That's what they're after, okay, a vegetable crown. And so Paul says here, that's what they operate self-control in all things for. He says, in contrast, we do it to receive something that will never rot, that will never waste away, and an eternal one, he says here, an imperishable one. The, the thing that we're talking about here is... Paul recognizes that the church in Corinth is pitting a sandwich that they will eat, digest, and that's the end of it, against something of eternal value, particularly another person. See, you can do a lot of fruitful things with your life, but the things that the Bible's constantly pointing to that we can do in Christ, the things that the Christian life is about when we talk about love, when we talk about um, you know, sharing uh, about Jesus and inviting people to receive him, uh, when we talk about becoming more and more in the likeness of Christ, these things are permanent. They're eternal. They will not waste away. You can do a lot of fruitful things in your life, but the things Paul is talking about are eternally fruitful of eternal consequence. And so his contrast here is one of they're willing to do this just for celery. 
Okay. And, and I, we can be honest here. He's, he's making a point from the image, but he knows they're not running for the wreath. They're running for what comes with the wreath, right? That you are the one who won the wreath, right? The notoriety and the fame and the position that comes with that. Many people run or compete just because they want to be the fastest. And the gold medal is just the evidence of that, right? Even that, though, is temporary. Even that will pass away. If you go into the Old Testament and you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the author makes this clear. He's like, you may be re uh, remembered. You may make it into the history books. But if you follow history long enough, you will be forgotten. And honestly, if there is no God, if this is all there is, then you will be entirely and completely forgotten because there will be no one or nothing to remember when the dust of the universe settles and there's nothing left. And so his point here is still valid. If Christianity is true, if God has offered you the rest of your life to do things of eternal value, then why wouldn't you navigate your decisions with the same way? Why wouldn't you, like the athlete, except with a much greater motivation, choose not to do certain things that are not that big of a deal, that concern today and not tomorrow, let alone eternity? Then he points to himself, and he says in verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. Okay. Now, we've titled this sermon this morning, Love is Better Than Comfort, because that's... That's the difference. If we're going to be honest, if all of these things are real, like I said, if we can really see people become Christians and therefore change their life for eternity, if there is really a God who is watching us live our lives and is excited to reward us, if we are truly servants of the living God and we will be judged for our faithfulness, why don't we? Why don't we exhaust every ounce of energy we have in that direction? I think a primary one that we don't think about is comfort. Once again, that's why I don't exercise. Because I'm quite comfortable, thank you very much. And for many Americans, the reason they start exercising is because they're no longer comfortable. Or they realize, right, that they won't be comfortable for much longer. What Paul is talking about here inherently is not just eternal but to some degree, a little bit harder to see. To some degree, a little bit harder to keep in mind because it's hard. It's hard to see the tangibility and the imminence. I mean, it's right in front of you of a cheeseburger versus this unseen goal. How much more, that's true of athletes, how much more is it true of us? But really, the motivation, uh, the thing that stifles our motivation is comfort. And so let's just talk about love this morning in contrast with comfort. It's always a choice. It's ultimately going to come down to sacrifice. That's how the Bible defines love. It says this is love in 1 John. This is love that he laid down his life for us. So also ought we to lay our lives down for one another. Okay, and so it says, do you want to understand what love looks like? It looks like the cross. It looks like sacrifice. That is not comfortable. And the problem is, for a lot of us, because love means a whole lot more 
than just that because we use that word so broadly and we can say, I love ice cream sundaes in the same way that we can say, I love you and I'd like to marry you for, you know, till death do us part. Uh, because of that broad thing, um, a lot of what goes for love is, is really just comfort. It's really just self-love. Sometimes when we feel like we love people, what we really love is the way they make us feel. Sometimes when we say that we are loving to people, it's actually just things that we also enjoy. It comes at no cost of us. If it springs out of you naturally, it's not sacrifice. And so what Paul says here is he's not running aimlessly. Here's what I'm saying. Love, if it's sacrifice, is strategic. Paul says he knows where the finish line is and he's, he's facing it and he's running in one direction. This is, this is not... Um, this is not just jogging, right? This is, this is not just speed walking that he's talking about. Uh, it's become really, really common for, um, for people who walk to share their, their walk routes and their mileage, you know, on social media. And it's always like this random squiggle. Okay, that's not, Paul says, I'm not running aimlessly. I have a purpose in mind. I have a goal. And that changes the way you run. If you're teeing up on the golf course, knowing where the pin is is going to determine which way you face before you take a swing, okay? And that's, that's what he says here. And this is something I don't think we always recognize. Love never just rolls with the punches. It's strategic. It has an end in mind. And actually, I find that to be tremendously freeing because if you know where the goal is, it may be a long way away, but you can take one step in that direction and make progress. Think of all of the people in your life. Even if you know the end game of where you'd like to see them get. Say, say let's just talk about evangelism as a single form of love, about telling somebody about Jesus and inviting them to receive him. Just put that pin on the green of where you want to get to, and it may feel really far away. Say it's with your coworkers. And you go, well, I just, I just don't really know them well enough to even have that conversation. Or it's inappropriate for me to have that conversation here at work. I'm not going to challenge that. But there is a step in that direction. Invite them out for coffee and get to know them. Okay, love eventually may look like very particular things, but it always looks like a step towards those things. Paul says, I'm not running aimlessly. He sees the Christian life as one where there's a clear and definitive goal. And so he's thinking, okay, what are the steps that I can take now that move in that direction? One foot in front of the other. Notice what he says second. He says, I do not box as one beating the air. Now, it's possible here that what he's talking about is shadow boxing, right? We've all seen this in movies. This is when a guy is boxing, but he doesn't actually have an opponent, okay? It's a form of exercise. He may be saying, hey, the Christian life, you're already in the ring. Don't, don't pretend that it's just a practice round. More likely what he's pointing out here, though, is when you are in the ring with an opponent, you, just don't, you don't just flail your fists, right? Every time you hit the air, that's a failed attempt in boxing. What he's saying is, I'm not happy just throwing my fist out, going through the motions. He says, I want to land every punch, what he's talking about here, simply put, if I can extend the metaphor, is impact. He doesn't want to just do stuff. He wants to do impactful stuff. Okay? And that's the nature of athleticism, but it's also the nature of what 
uh, we're talking about here. And notice what he says in verse 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. You know what he literally says there? He picks up on the boxing metaphor and he says, but I give my body a black eye. He gets specific here. He says, but I, you know, I take the pain. And, and here's, here's another uncomfortable thing about love. This is the reason why you have to have a goal in mind or you won't actually love because as we saw earlier, love is sacrifice. It's going to cost you. Now, I want to say a word here because if you just take this phrase, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, specifically, if you look at what it says in the King James, I buffet my body, I beat my body. If you take even that literal Greek word here that means to take it in the face, okay? If you take that, it makes it look like plain Jane aestheticism, right? Like the body is evil and so it needs to be beaten. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. In fact, this is the best way to understand what Paul is talking about because we can look at the athlete, okay? I'm going to say something that probably, probably has been said by a boxing coach at one time, but I, I have no idea. But the reality I think will hit all of us. You will not beat your opponent if you can't beat yourself right? If you can't overcome yourself, you'll never overcome your opponent. There's a sense where you have to win personally before you can win in the ring. Doesn't that make sense? Right? Isn't that what we've been talking about all this morning is that there's this self-control issue that stands in the way. And if you can't, if you can't make it through your regiment of routine and practice, if you can't keep to your diet, you're going to be hindered in the ring. You're going to be limited. See, what Paul is talking about here is not sadistic. It's not enjoying the pain. Nobody enjoys the pain, okay? But they endure the pain, why? For a purpose. That's what Paul is talking about. And second here, he's not just talking about, um, when he says body here, there's a tendency to read this in much of the New Testament as if he's saying, the body is evil, and so I'm going to starve it so that it's weak. The body is evil, so I'm going to beat it so I can keep it under control. Keep it in the metaphor here. What he's talking about here is, is not that there's anything wrong with the body, it's, it's that there's something better, right? The reason why we abstain from any given thing in the Christian life is not because it's wrong. It's not because it's bad. The things Paul's talking about here are not bad things. They're fine things. They're totally okay things. He says, yet I still abstain from them. Why? Because I'm after something better. Because I have something more important. Because there's something I want more, okay? And so he says he disciplines his body to keep it under control, This is going to be an uncomfortable reality for many of this this morning. But the thing that makes other people the most hard to love, the thing that makes love so difficult, the thing that is the greatest opponent standing in your way of seeing eternal fruitfulness of doing these things is you. It's you. It comes back again to that idea of comfort. It comes back again to that idea uh, that your so-called freedoms that you enjoy you don't really have any choice in the matter to do them. You have never tried to stop, so you're not aware of that. You know, your, your shackles, if you will, are made of velvet, or your chains are made of gold, and so you can fool yourself into thinking that you're rich and have need of nothing, but in actuality, you're a slave. 
there was a French king who was threatened by his brother um, taking the throne. But he knew that his brother had a serious eating problem. And so he put him in a room with a relatively small door and said, as soon as you're skinny enough, you can walk out. And then he just put sumptuous meals in front of him every day. The point here is not getting out of the room. It's being king. Right? Maybe he lived like a king in that little tiny room that he could never leave. But that's what Paul says. He says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Not just for the sake of having a controlled body, but having a useful body. This is an embarrassing illustration, but there was an occasion a couple of years ago where I did an event with a friend, um, and I came outside, and, and he was telling me about how his mono had turned into chronic fatigue. And this evening that we spent together had completely wiped him out. He lived five blocks from where we were, and he was afraid he wouldn't be able to make it home. And so... Uh, I had also walked to the event, and I said, oh, I'll just go get my car. And so I had to jog five blocks because it was just cats and dogs outside, and I left him in the rain. And about two blocks in, I realized that I was not in shape. And because I was not in shape, he, in all of his weakness and how terrible he was feeling, had to wait longer. And it, like I said, it's a silly illustration, but it's definitely the principle we're talking about now. And I think we've all experienced this. There are occasions where our motivation is right and we get, uh, we get hijacked by our own weakness. And so we walk into a conversation with all the right intentions and we end up blowing up in the middle of it uh, because we got distracted. Notice how he finishes this sentence. He says, but I discipline my body as, uh, and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now it's possible, and this is how the ESV understands it, that this word disqualified is just maintaining the metaphor, right? There's a way to be thrown out of the competition altogether. Because here he moves to preaching, which is not part of the sport, I, th I think he's actually stepped out of the metaphor here and he's bringing it to its final conclusion. And so the idea here um, means unapproved, not, not disqualified like in a sporting event, but but unapproved. So if you had um, fake currency in the Roman world and it was tested and shown to be not the metal it was supposed to be, this is the word that they'd use. And so the question becomes, what is Paul talking about here? Is he saying, is he saying that if you don't run the race well, then, then you're out? Is, is, he, is he putting, yes, you're saved up front, but if you don't cross the finish line on your own, then, then that's all removed? Is God basically saying, look, I've given you a second chance. I've reset you at the starting line, but now you've got to run the race. And if you don't pass, if you don't cross the finish line, if you don't finish this, it's over. First, first, let's just recognize this. And I'm taking this once again from chapter four, even though we don't look. He looks at this same concept of the Christian life live towards a goal, live towards reward. And he does it in terms of building. And he says, all of us are building a life right now, and what differs is the materials. And so sometimes we're building with gold, silver, and precious jewels, and other times we're building with wood, hay, and stubble. And he says, the judgment's going to be like a fire, and so here's this house that we've built, and it'll incinerate, and all that will be left is the gold, silver, and precious jewels. And what he says is, there are many in those days who will be saved, though as through fire. In other words, let me use a modern idiom, by the skin of their teeth. 
Okay, still smelling of smoke, if you will. They, it means that their life as a Christian will be wasted, but that doesn't remove their salvation. Maybe what he's saying here is simply that he wants to win the prize, that he wants to win the reward. And once again, if you dial back to what winning means for Paul, which is winning somebody for Jesus, he's just recognizing here uh, that your witness can fail. And I want to be very careful with that phrase because, frankly, God's plan's a lot bigger than you, and he doesn't need you. And that's not what I mean. But I think all of us have recognized disqualification. Where, where there's no route forward, where there's no way to move forward. However, it is interesting that as we get into the next chapter where he brings this to his conclusion, he's going to start to talk about something bigger than that. Not just Christians who lose their rewards, but those who identify as Christians who end up proving they were never Christians at all. And so this phrase, lest I be disqualified, let's put it in its whole context. In preaching to others, lest I be disqualified. In bringing into the kingdom, I would be left on the outside of it. That's what he's saying here. This is not putting um, what, what theologians call eternal security at risk. This idea that if God has saved you fully and permanently, you were saved fully and permanently. If Jesus' blood was enough to get you into the kingdom, no amount of sin can get you out of the kingdom. But... In the words of Jay Vernon McGee, who was a, uh, a preacher last generation, uh, often on the radio, um, he said, I believe in the eternal security of believers. I just don't believe in the eternal security of make-believers. And when we get into chapter 10, you'll see this. That's really what Paul is talking about. He's talking about people who, who are running the race but are really just just tourists who hop the fence. He, what he's saying here is that there is a total possibility that you would, uh, would be part of a church or would call yourself a Christian. Jesus spoke of this. He said, in that day when it all comes down, many will come and say, but didn't I preach in your name? Didn't I cast out demons and do miracles in your name? Right? Those are pretty large evidences that you're on the inside. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's striking. It's, it's almost um, terrifying that Paul, of all people, recognizes that's a risk for him as well. The issue here is not if your Christian life wins all the medals. And you can look at life right now and going, yeah, I'm obviously a Christian because, in fact, Paul's just said he can preach to people. He's planted churches all over the world. You're not here looking for the evidence, okay? In all honesty, what you're really looking for is the desire. That's what's going to determine it. Because if there is such a place as heaven, then you're going to long for it. And if there is such a tremendous value in this eternal permanence of a God who rewards life for living in the way that he calls it to, then you're going to want to aspire to that. You see, Christianity is not just... Uh, not just the right rules to win the game. As I always say, it's, it's a complete change of games. And so you're aspiring to different things. Paul here is not, not directly warning them that if they don't kick up their A game, they'll never make it. But he doesn't want to excuse the fact that if they don't resonate with what we've talked about this morning, that there's a danger in that. There's a falseness in that. 
isn't it true that if the constant evidence of your life is that you're living for this life, that you probably don't believe in a life to come? Isn't it true that if you're totally satisfied and content with the freedoms of this life, that you don't really have an end game in mind? That's the danger that Paul is talking about this morning. But let's look at the big picture. This is what he says. He says that there's a possibility, that there's a potential, and I would even say there's a purpose laid out before you in the Christian life, and it is achievable, and it is valuable. And so he's saying, keep that in mind as you make your decisions. That's why you shouldn't do things that trip up another believer. That's why you should ask yourself, not just am I free to do this, but is it loving to do this? That's why Paul refuses to take a paycheck because in doing so, he removes an obstacle of people coming to, to Christ. Like it or not, God's made you an athlete. He has a race for you to run and he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. In fact, this is probably the best summary of everything we've talked about this morning. It's in Ephesians 2. I wouldn't be surprised if you know it. Um, but this is, this is what Paul says, putting everything together. He says this in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a results of work so that no one may boast. And so he begins by reminding us that salvation is through Jesus, that salvation is by grace, that salvation is not of works, that how you live your life will not determine your salvation, but your salvation will and should determine your life. And so he goes on and he says next, uh, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does he say here? He says that when you were saved, when you received Jesus, you became a new creation with a purpose and with a plan. And he says he saved you not because of your good works, but he did save you unto good works. He has things for you to do, and he's already laid them out. He's already prepared them. He's already set up all of the checkpoints along your race, and all you have to do is walk in them. But don't assume just because it says walk here that it's not going to be difficult. Don't assume that it's not going to involve effort. Don't assume that there shouldn't be the same amount of self-control we would find in an athlete who competes for the fame of his human peers that will pass away. Don't assume that that is going to lead to self-control and the well-done, good, and faithful servant of the Jesus who loved you and died for you is not going to motivate the same amount of self-control. As we go about our week, as we sit down around the Thanksgiving table, as we walk into Black Friday, okay, don't just ask, can I? Or even, why can't I? Ask, where am I going? And then make the decisions. Let's pray.
Father, I don't know if this metaphor speaks stronger to those who have been or are athletic, who those who have been or are competitive, but I know that I find it doubly convicting because it's not just the illustration that I can see so beautifully, it's the, it's the thing that trips me up, my comfort. I pray that you would give us new and fresh vision of the value, the value of this life lived with the eternal perspective. I pray that you transition our calendar so that in the words of Martin Luther, there'd only be two days on it, this day and that day, the day that you return, the day that it all comes to be, the day that everything is consummated and finished. I pray that we would run towards the goal, that as Paul says, that we would... Um, that we would press on in the upward call of Christ Jesus. That as the author of Hebrews says, that we would lay aside every sin that so easily ensnares us and run the race with endurance. I pray, God, that we would recognize that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness, that you have created us a new creation in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them pray that we would be sacrificial in our love, that we would be strategic, and that we would be ready and willing to bear the cost, not because the cost is good, not because the pain is good, but because the aim is worth it. We ask that you'd embed this in us, in Jesus' name, amen.